Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. This morning, as we record, we mark the 16th of February, 2022, the date on which some sources indicated Russia would begin the attack on Ukraine that Moscow has threatened for several months. Glancing at the headlines, I can happily report that outside of increased cyber activity, the nearly 150,000 Russian troops massed around the borders of Ukraine have not yet moved. In recent meetings in Moscow with both President Emmanuel Macron of France and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, as well as telephone conversations with President Biden, Russian President Vladimir Putin and his representatives claim to be standing firm by their policy demands, but also to be open to continued diplomacy. The troops and tanks, helicopters, and heavy equipment remain, while separatists in eastern Ukraine, supported by Moscow, continue their conflict against the government in Kyiv, but war has not yet come. Here at A Better Peace, we are not in the business of trying to predict the future, a game better left to bookmakers and the occasional overconfident newspaper pundit. But we are very much interested in understanding how such crises have been and can be managed, how the actors can use the levers of coercion to deter or compel, and how strategic leaders can use their understanding of the past to meet the challenges of the present. Our guest today, Dr. Joel Hillison, has long tried to do just those things in analyzing the fraught triangular relationship between Russia, Ukraine, and the West. In a 2017 article in Orbis entitled Fear, Honor, and Interest, Rethinking Deterrence in 21st Century Europe, Dr. Hillison used the famous trinity from Thucydides, Fear, Honor, and Interest, to consider how the United States should approach relations with Russia. Today, we have invited him to join us and consider how the events of the past five years have further informed his analysis, and also to consider how insights from the Peloponnesian War, so often misused and abused, can illuminate the problems of diplomacy between great power rivals. Dr. Joel R. Hillison holds the General Colin Powell Chair of Military and Strategic Studies at the United States Army War College. A retired military officer with over 30 years of experience, he spent three years in NATO and served as the Comptroller Multinational Forces Iraq. He received his PhD in International Relations from Temple University and is a valued colleague here at the War College. Welcome to A Better Peace, Dr. Joel Hillison. Well, thank you, Ron. It's always a pleasure to uh, be with you, and I always learn something in our conversations. So I want to start off by wishing you a happy uh, Ukrainian uh, Unity Day. Excellent. Uh, to you and all my colleagues and friends in Europe. Um, and I wish this was a, at a better time uh, for everyone, but I'm happy to have this conversation with you today. And I understand that uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine was traveling to Mariupol today to celebrate, to mark Unity Day, to show that he was unafraid of where the Russians were. Have you heard anything about that? No, he was on a uh, uh, morning show uh, 
and I didn't get where he was broadcasting from, but uh, I wish them all the best. Indeed. indeed. So um, what inspired you to write this original article in 2017? Yeah, thanks, Ron. So um, at that time, we had a new administration coming in. Uh, President Trump uh, had announced his America first approach to foreign policy. Um, relations between the United States and Russia were at a really low point. And I thought it was an opportune time for us to relook our relations with Russia and deterrence in general. And, you know, I was thinking back to my time in NATO. I was with the combined joint planning staff uh, during the Kosovo uh, War. And I remember being surprised, you know, one day to wake up with Russian paratroopers on the airport uh, there in uh, Pristina. And it was clear to me that we were getting something wrong about the Russians, right? Mm -hmm. That we just were misdiagnosing their their motivations. Um, We thought they were playing along, that we are all in harmony. Um, So that was one of the motivations. And, and, And as you know, we teach Thucydides here at the War College. So we had just completed our class on war and military strategy and had talked about the fear, honor, and interest. And I thought, you know, this would be a good lens perhaps to look at our relationship with Russia and our concepts, you know, related to deterrence. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm, I'm glad you you sort of point out this, this uh, the connection between sort of personal history and sort of world history and writing. So there's, we, we always, we like to go back to Thucydides to understand conflict. Your experience working at NATO in Kosovo 2019, of course, you were writing in the aftermath of the 2014, uh, in a, a was, let's say the beginning of this, what became this long frozen conflict with Ukraine. Um, what has, what would you change before I'm going to ask you to get into specifics about the article? I just want to say, what would you change about anything that you argued in 2017 about how to approach the Russians based on what's happened over the past five years? Yeah, I don't think I would change. I mean, things have happened that I, I said we shouldn't do, we've done. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think the same approach is still valid today. I think we still misread Russia. Um, and we can get into that, you know, a little bit further down the line. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, the general approach is still the same. You know, we try to teach about strategic empathy here at the War College, and it's easier said than done. You know, you have to put yourself in their perspective, in their shoes, look at the world from their viewpoint to understand how they're acting or try to make sense of it. And uh, deterrence is really all about understanding your your adversary and um, their will, what they're looking for and how much pain they're willing to accept in order to meet their interests. Right. I mean, I know that one of the things that we talk about at the War College uh, is how when we look at coercion theory, when we talk about deterrence, that um, that it has to involve communication, that uh, the, the big mistake is to imagine that you can sort of deter in a vacuum, that you can have a table of saying, well, if I do this, this will keep him from doing that. Uh, you actually have to know specifics about your about your counterparty um, if you want to do it right. Um, so how should a clearer understanding of the role of fear, honor, and interest shape Western responses to Russian policy? Yeah. So, um, you know, you mentioned how we approach um, coercion theory and deterrence. You know, it's generally based on this logic of consequences where, um, you know, whether it's deterrence by denial, punishment, you know, we we imagine our adversaries uh, having this 
rational calculus going on in their mind of the cost versus benefits. Uh, and, and as long as we have the capability and the will to deter them, things will be fine. But that's all kind of squishy, right? You know, how do they know we have the will and uh, how do we know how much uh, pain they're willing to accept and, and, and what they see as a benefit? Mm -hmm. You know, you and I had this conversation in or after class about interest and they're not immutable. And we think we clearly understand their interests and in, in how important they are. But oftentimes we don't. Mm -hmm. And this is where the framework of fear, honor and interest is useful, right? And, and we also teach a lot about Clausewitz here and his imagery. And, and I think some of that imagery is helpful in understanding fear, honor, and interest. Um, you know, if you imagine, you know, three different magnets, you know, being fear, honor, and interest, and they're all pulling on this piece of iron in the middle, um, you know, it, and just think of that piece of iron as maybe the, our adversary's decision-making process. Um, you know, in whatever those three poles, you know, are, um, they're constantly acting on their their decisions, right? And um, so, you know, what is what is it that Russia fears? Um, clearly, they don't fear our four thousand troops and the the enhanced forward presence. That's really there more for assuring our allies that we have skin in the game. Um, but what they do fear is instability. Um, not long before the Kosovo operations there was a lot of turmoil in russia you know we had the coup then we had you know this shock therapy where we opened up the russian economy to more capitalist uh ways of doing things you know the fall of the ruble there was a lot going on during that time um that caused anxiety uh in the minds of the russian people and, and their leadership right. um so what they fear is they don't want a democratic, stable, Western-looking Ukraine on their doorstep. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, that's what they fear. Not because they think Ukraine's going to invade, but they think it could destabilize um, them. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with Belarus. They don't want these protesters to, you know, win uh, against the, the government there. They, they fear that instability. Right. They, they also want to be treated as a great power. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we talk disparagingly about, and this is my view, not the government's view, obviously, right. but, uh, you know, about them being a regional power and, you know, Putin is a killer. Um, it's not necessarily helpful. Um, you know, they, they see themselves as a great power and they have a place in the world. And especially the leader of Russia, it matters, you know, that who's in that seat, um, how they view the world and how they feel about it. Mm -hmm. See, um, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say this. This gets me into that that, that interesting question because when you say when you say fear, honor, and interest, so it's not enough to try to think about material things one can offer. One has to think about the non-material elements. Are there are there sort of non-material inducements that one could offer in diplomacy with Russia um, that would, uh, you know, let's say, if, if we're aware that these other factors can play a role? Um, what are the kind of non-material inducements one could offer to lead to successful diplomacy? Um, in other words, how does one appear to how does one appeal to fear and honor as well as interest? Yeah, I mean, part of it is, you know, the things we're doing now, some of the confidence building discussion, dialogue, the whole NATO Russia Council was set up to do some of that, mm -hmm. to give them a seat at the table. And it's a privileged seat, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we have a lot of partners in NATO. They don't have that privileged uh, position in the NATO Russian Council. 
And for a while, we suspended those talks. Um, and they've been, you know, renewed recently. So after NATO summits, you know, we usually have a NATO-Russian council. I mean, things like that can help um, in a non-material way address some of their issues um, and concerns about being treated with respect, um, taking their interest into, not rolling over, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, treating them as an equal partner with equal concerns and not just selling them, hey, this is in your interest too, um, when they don't trust us and they don't necessarily see this as in their interest. And, and you think back, in, and you're the historian, you know, think back to 1941 in December, what did the border look like for Russia? Mm-hmm. Well, it looked a little bit like what we have today if you were to take Belarus and Ukraine and push them over to the other team. You know, it's a completely different yeah. time now. Right. But um, there are some legitimate fears. You know, those countries give Russia strategic depth. There is an affinity there with their near abroad. Um, so, yeah, I, I think just there's a lot of things we can do through diplomacy, through dialogue that will help mitigate some of that fear and some of their concern about being you know, left out in the cold and not being given the respect they deserve. Right. And that, well, and this is where we get to one of these interesting paradoxes that I wanted to talk to you about is that, you know, one can understand one's adversary and sometimes you understand one, one's adversary well enough to get a feeling that there's nothing that you can offer them that you'd be willing to offer them. So in other words, how does an understanding of fear on our interest how would this approach differ from what we hear from a lot of uh, so of self-defined realists who say, well, we should simply just tell the Russians that they're entitled to do whatever they want in Ukraine. That would appeal to Russian fear, honor, and interest. But of course, that would not appeal to the, uh, to the Ukrainian, to Ukrainian sovereignty or Ukrainian uh, uh, interest at all. So how could one appeal to um, these sort of Russian sentiments without simply giving the Russians what it is that they want, which is something that would be at the expense of Ukraine. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> the realist position you met, you know, John Mearsheimer wrote an interesting article back in uh, 2014, uh, why Ukraine crisis is the West's fault. Right. right. And he's a brilliant scholar and I have a lot of respect for him, but his argument was basically, he blamed NATO enlargement. He blamed the expansion of the EU. You know, our um, backing of pro-democracy movements and, you know, being out in the Maiden Square and, you know, all those things. So, yeah, I'm not advocating that. I'm not advocating giving Russia a sphere of influence. Um, but I think we need to understand objectively what our interests are, what our vital interests are, and what Russia's vital interests are, and where we can. Uh, reduce the risk mm-hmm. of, of conflict. We don't want to get into this escalation spiral. Right. You know, around that same time that Mearsheimer was writing, um, Richard Betts talked about you know how the British mil- miscalculated German intentions in 1914 and again in 1938. So, right. you know, is this a revanchist power that um, is being very aggressive? And if we appease them, they're going to take advantage and keep rolling west. Or are we in 1914 where it's a status quo power generally, um, but they just have legitimate concerns. And if we escalate, it's going to be a tit for tat um, spiral and we have this security dilemma going on. So, yeah, I'm not saying we should grant them a sphere of influence, but we have to be honest with ourselves and our our allies, what it is our commitments are and, and how do we how do we approach Russia in a way that 
takes notice of their legitimate concerns and uh, their fears. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was thinking about this idea of, of, of uh, security dilemmas and escalation spirals. And um, I'm not a cartoonist, but uh, I just standing here, I was thinking of uh, my version of a New Yorker cartoon. And it could be um, two, clearly two generals in tattered uniforms standing in a completely blasted landscape, like after some kind of catastrophe. And one of them says to the other, you know, maybe it would have been better if it had been never. Right. right. You know, whenever anybody says it's now or never, right, that generally tends to encourage escalation. And so this idea about pushing never off as far as possible and keeping the discussions going, what do you think would be the basis for ongoing discussions between Russia, the Ukraine, Russia, Ukraine and the West that would uh, diffuse this crisis um, and also respect the legitimate security interests of all of the players? Yeah. So before just before we get to that, you know, you, you, you talked about pushing off never. And again, you know, thinking back to Thucydides and when I was writing that article, you know, I read a piece by Richard Lebeau, who mm. was a historian. And, you know, he talked about, you know, where Athens in Athens, reason lost control of fear and honor and Sparta interests lost control of of honor. Right. And, and I think they wished, you know, in <laughs> retrospect that they get pushed this off a little bit. Um, so, yeah, so what does that mean for us uh, in the future? You know, we can't, we're going to have a relationship with Russia. They're our neighbors. They're nuclear capable. Um, you're, you're the master of geopolitics, Ron, so you can speak to this. So uh, <laughs> That's, why, that's yeah. why I like being able to ask these questions, right? So I don't have to yeah, buy the answers uh, today. So, I mean, they're, they're a huge country with a distinct culture, history, um, and Ukraine is nestled between them and, and the European Union, and that's not going to change, right? Um, so what kind of relationship can we have with Russia that might help this, help us avoid a, a security dilemma, but not lead to appeasement? Um, so again, you know, what we say publicly, I think matters. Um, I think we should be pointing out all the things that Russia said they were going to do that they haven't done, you know. You know, from, you know, when we remove nuclear weapons from the Ukraine, um, you know, the Helsinki agreement, all, all these things that Russia's backtracked on, that's fair game. Um, and uh, but, you know, we need to be very firm in support of our NATO allies. Also, they, they're rightly worried about where we are and where we're going to go. So we need to, re- re- need to reassure them and um, we need to help Ukraine as much as we can but they're not a NATO ally. And we have to be clear about that. And in a perfect world, maybe they would be, but they're, they're not. So I think for the, for the near term, the best we can hope for is a sovereign Ukraine as sovereign as they can be with what they control currently outside of NATO and the EU and to support them as best we can and keep the pressure on Russia, but, but also to, cooperate with Russia where we can. Right. Well, I see, and this is what I've been struggling with as well. And, uh, you know, recognizing Ukraine as a sovereign state and Ukraine is entitled to decide its alliances, right? That Ukraine can want to become a member of NATO and members of NATO can de- are also sovereign and can decide among themselves when or if 
Ukraine could be a member. Um, and the idea that that we in 2014, when Russia acted last against Ukraine, the discussion was not about NATO at all. It was even about the EU. And I would say right. this goes back to 1952 when Stalin tried to argue for the neutrality of Germany, right? His, his vision for neutrality, it wasn't just about possible West German membership in NATO. It was he wanted to, to keep West Germany from being part of an integrated European economy. And the West has an interest in saying, you know, no, we, we believe in the expansion. We believe in European integration. We think democracy is good. And so I'm wrestling with this issue of how should the international community show that it has respect for uh, Ukraine's sovereignty, right? Because as you say, right, being a member of NATO or not a member of NATO is a profound difference, right? We have a commitment to Poland right. and to the Baltics that we don't have to Ukraine. But the international community as a whole and I think about other organizations like the OSCE, like the United Nations, right, is they have been, to my mind, shockingly silent on the question of uh, Ukraine being entitled to be sovereign and free from insult. That it seems like the world has turned to the United States and by extension NATO to deal with this at the same time as the world says, oh, by the way, right, your actions, you know, the, the, to include NATO, uh, Ukraine and NATO would be provocative. But I don't see the UN acting um, in the name of the general principle of sovereignty and the general principle of national self-determination. And how can, how can, how could the United States leverage this sort of the larger international community as a diplomatic effort to try to protect Ukraine against undue influence from Russia? Or is that, is that yeah, even possible? Yeah. I mean, so the UN, you know, Russia has a seat on the UN, uh, UN Security Council, right. so that's not going to happen. Right. And and that's why we didn't have a, a mandate going into Kosovo. Right. right. Um, so, you know, we, we need to talk where we can talk. And, you know, we have platforms, the G7. Um, we kicked Russia out of the G8 because they were acting poorly. And uh, we need to be united with our European colleagues and our other democratic colleagues around the world, Japan, uh, South Korea and standing up for uh, Ukrainian sovereignty. But we also have to be clear, Ukraine's not getting into NATO in the near term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Claude Juncker said this, um, we have admitted this as well, just because of Russia's aggression in the past, um, it, it, it's realistically not gonna happen. Mm -hmm. and, and Article 10 isn't a blank check. Mm -hmm. You know, if you it, read the, the charter, it, you know, that expansion has to contribute to security. Mm -hmm. And where we are today, it, it would neither contribute to NATO security nor would it contribute to Ukraine's security. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean never. Right. You, you mentioned Russia's concern or Soviet Union's concern about Germany in 1952. Um, but at some point in time when the conditions changed, when there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of change going on, um, you know, Chancellor Cole, President Bush and Gorbachev sat down and they were able to discuss what is german reunification look like mm -hmm. and perhaps maybe now it is in the interest of the soviet union to have east germany reunited with west germany under the umbrella of nato mm -hmm. because they you know they're for the longest time we're worried about a rising germany it's not satisfactory if you're east germany you know waiting from 1952 to you know the 1990s um but some things we just have take time and uh, we need to be resolute in supporting our allies. Certainly there should be costs for these aggressive behaviors. There is a framework under Minsk II mm -hmm. that's been established that is unsatisfactory to everybody. So it probably is a starting point. 
right? And 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 I guess that's the the key here, right? Is that the 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 United States should not overstate its uh, its ability to force the Russians to think what we want them to think, but we can use the levers at hand to limit what the Russians are willing and able to do. And right. the, the, and and so in keeping the idea of uh, keeping the dialogue going, you know, better jaw jaw than war war to quote uh, Churchill, right. right? That, that, that's, that, that is a possibility. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to ask you to predict the future because I promised I wouldn't in the intro, but um, uh, if I were to ask you to predict the future, what do you think is likely to happen? <laughs> oh, Ron, that's, that's something I expect to hear out of the European Union. Not <laughs> you like that? I'm sorry. I apologize, Joel. No, I'm a big fan of the European <laughs> You know, so, so again, I'm not a, a Putin scholar. Um, I don't know what's in his mind. Nobody does. But you know, you can, we can look at indicators w- what things are happening. And Admiral Stravitas, the former Secur, was online the other day talking about different indicators. Um, I think we're going to muddle through this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a full bore invasion of Ukraine is you know like swallowing a porcupine. Some people have said um, it's, but it all depends. If you know, Putin has a very high pain threshold Mm. and this is a window of opportunity perhaps in his mind um there's a lot of vulnerability in the west you know you can look at things like brexit um the trade wars we launched not against just china but also our our allies and partners um you know we have the uh, an aggressive china that's taking our focus um the the chaotic withdrawal of the united states and nato from Afghanistan. And quite frankly, there's turmoil here in the United States, mm-hmm. you know, with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So things are looking pretty disruptive on the Western side of the ledger where Russia's, you know, in the long term, it doesn't look great. Mm-hmm. Um, but energy costs are high, which means revenues are high. They've got a huge foreign currency reserve, some $600 billion. So they have a little cushion um, to sit on. Um, Ukraine's not going to get any weaker, I don't think, in the near future militarily. So it's a window of opportunity for them. And, and we just need to stretch this out and find ways to get the dialogue going again. You know, talk about arms control where it can be mutually beneficial. Um, there are things on both sides of the ledger mm-hmm. um, that I think would help everybody in the region and keeping our allies and partners, you know, unified. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, to, uh, to, as we get approach the end of this conversation, I was thinking about in the debate in Sparta over the possibility of war with Athens, uh, the king, Archidamnus, right, gets up in front of the audience and says, you know, you young people don't know what war is like, and you're talking a lot about going to war. I'm older, I understand what conflict really means. And I don't think we should do this. Um, he, of course, he of course gets voted down because this is what happens. Yeah. But the um, but that question of uh, the role of responsible stakeholders to remind people of the costs of precipitate action. Um, how how would you rate the uh, the role of the Biden administration so far in dealing with this crisis? So I think I, I think some things have been good. You know the. The increased troop presence in Europe, I, I, I think that's the right step to go. I'm not a big fan of pulling our diplomats back. You know, we've become pretty risk averse. And, you know, our colleagues 
in the State Department take risks all the time, and they're great people for doing that. And it's it's a risky business, just like our business is risky. So I think that's not necessarily helpful when we pull back. Um, but you know, being firm on Nord Stream two, that it's it's not going to happen if Russia invades. I think that's important um, because that's something that Russia and, and Europeans want. And if the Europeans can show, especially Germany, that um, at least it's going to happen and it's going to cause us both pain, but it's worth it because these are our values. Um, I think that's the right way to go. Um, dialogue is also important, uh, but I, I think we could do a little bit more on, as you mentioned, bringing in the global players mm -hmm. to stand in solidarity with Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And today's a great day to do that. Right. Um, right. And, um, you know, let's, we're, we're not going to put troops on the ground in, in Ukraine, then everybody should know that's the case. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's palatable, but we can stand with them. We can keep sending them support, share intelligence, um, encourage our allies to send more than helmets. <laughs> um, right. right. So, yeah. And that's, I think they're doing okay, but we could do better. We could do better. Well, and uh, Joel, I promise you that, uh, you know, hopefully this, the Ukraine Unity Day uh, runs peacefully, or at least as peaceful as days have been in Ukraine for the past eight years. Um, whatever happens, um, I can guarantee you we're probably going to bring you back here to talk about how we got it completely wrong or right. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll be honest. We'll be honest one way or another. Yeah. And Ron, one last sure, thing. Ahead. I think, you know, you know, we have an opportunity with NATO's new strategic concept, mm -hmm. you know, rolling out in June, you know, that's going to be an important signaling document. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that's another opportunity for us to demonstrate resolve to our allies, to, but still to take into account, you know, our, the concerns of our uh, folks in Russia, what they're worried about. Sure. That's great. Well, and, and uh, hopefully we will still be, you know, it would not be the worst thing in the world if we were still talking about this problem, right? Uh, exactly. As long as we have not uh, over-escalated. So, Joel Hillison, thanks so much for joining us today on A Better Peace to talk about your work, and we look forward to having you back again. So, thanks very much. Thank you, Ron. It was a pleasure. It was great. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please subscribe to A Better Peace because you should have already. But if you have not already subscribed to A Better Peace, go do that right now. And after you do that, rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice because that's how more people can find out about us so that we can continue to broaden this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you next time. And until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.